Pastor Rob is spreading the fire as far as uh, Detroit back east, but we do have the home fires burning here. Welcome to God Speak. If you're visiting for the first time, good to have you with us at this one o'clock service. And as our custom is, we are taking a passage of scripture from our Anchored in the Word series, which is a two-year Bible reading program where we go from Genesis to Revelation. We'll be turning to Mark chapter 7 today. So if you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 7. If you need a Bible, our servants team right here, they have Bibles, just raise your hand and they'll get you one. In a moment, as you make your way to Mark chapter 7, um, I want to encourage you that We'll be standing in a moment and uh, reading it together. But the reality of this passage of scripture that we're looking at is how to diagnose your heart problems. What happens when an individual or a group of people exchange empty human tradition for sincere relationship with God? And Jesus is going to share with us those two things, and he's going to basically do a heart exam to explore what's going on in the inside or if people are focusing on the outside. Years ago, my dad was having some heart problems. He'd take off walking, and after about 50 feet, he became fatigued, and he realizes his heart was bothering him, and so uh, he went in and had some tests. Well, it just so happened at this hospital, the uh, cath lab where they go in with the camera and they're checking out your heart. Uh, the guy that ran that was a friend of mine by the name of Ben. So I was up there for my dad's test. And after the test, my dad went back to the, the room and I went in to talk to Ben. And I'm like, Ben, show me my dad's heart, like the inside of it. And so he's like, hey, when I'm your dad's age, which when I'm 80 years old, I want my heart to look just like your dad's. And he showed me the scope of seeing the inside of my dad's heart. He's like, this is what a healthy heart looks like on the inside. Here's a guy that Monday through Friday, eight hours a day, puts a camera inside of people's hearts and checks it out. It's amazing. Now, my dad's heart looked amazing, but he had a valve that was just leaking. It was kind of slow to close, and so they had some medication for him. And uh, he went on to get some other treatments for that. And I thought it was fascinating to me that we can look at that physical heart, but what about somebody's spiritual heart? Because surrounding religious things, there's oftentimes a lot of tradition that you're trying to sort out, right? And depending on if you're old school and every culture, every subculture has these kind of quirky traditions. I grew up in the, the rodeo subculture, and so... For uh, my stepdad, one of the worst things that you could possibly do, I mean, he would literally become unhinged, is if you put your cowboy hat on the bed. It was like bad luck, seriously bad luck. So if you're going to, we would uh, go to these rodeos and we're riding bulls, you go into a hotel room. If you threw your hat on the bed, prepare to be chewed out. He's going to give you the tongue lashing of your life about putting a cowboy hat on the bed. And you're like, You're going to have a rabbit's foot in your pocket as well? I mean, if the black cat goes across the road, we're going to have problems. If you break the mirror, oh no, seven years. I mean, where, where's this kind of weird, superstitious type of things that, that trouble people? But other people are just troubled as it gets closer pertaining to church or even sometimes generation gaps. I had this man that was thoroughly disgusted with me on a Sunday morning, because he came into the service, and there was this 17-year-old, probably teenager, he came with his parents, you could tell the kid not, did not want to be there, right? Because they come in, and they got their ball cap, like, scrimping. and he sits down, and he just, on the very back road, he, he couldn't get any further away from the word of the Lord, if he tried. But he was basically demonstrating by his posture, and his body language, and his hat pulled down over his eyes, that I don't want to be here. And yet he was there physically, which is funny. Through the service, he started listening. And every now and then, you could see he'd look up and start leaning forward. And then he's like, oh, no, I can't do that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like he's wanting to be pulled into the situation. Well, after the service, a guy that was sitting in close proximity to him, about 60 years of age, came up to me. And I could tell by the look on his face, he was angry. He's like, why did you not force that young man to take off his hat? No, 
we are in a rural culture where I'm from. And so if you come inside, you take off your lid. Like you, you take off your hat when you come in a house. It's, it's a, for the older traditional culture, it's, it's like insulting. It, it's almost like in the, um, if you go to India or places or Asia, there's, it's a custom that you take your shoes off at the door. If you go inside with your shoes on, it's offensive to them culturally. And that's, this guy was so offended and wanted to know why I didn't call this young kid out in front of the whole congregation to get his ball cap off his head. And because I've grown up in this culture and it didn't surprise me, his, I said, well, you know, I'll tell you exactly what I was thinking. He goes, I would like to know. You're the pastor of this church. And I said, well, what I was thinking is, is if this was my teenager and I wanted to reach his heart, or do I want to reach his hat? <laughs> and so I just decided in that moment, I'm going to go for his heart and not his hat. And it was, the answer did not satisfy him. I thought it was excellent, but, <laughs> right? He's still left in a huff because he was so wrapped up in this issue about a hat indoors culturally. <laughs> I began some years ago when it, became okay or culturally appropriate if I wore just a shirt with my shirt tail untucked. Oh my goodness, there was one guy that one, no Sunday went by without him reprimanding me for having my shirt untucked. And I tried to share it. Once again, it was an old school guy. But there are just things that are culturally, traditionally appropriate for people and depending on what circle you came from and what your cultural background is. <laughs> Having the mindset of wearing your Sunday best. How, how many of you grew up with that mindset? If you go to church, you wear your Sunday best, right? I mean, you gotta put on your tie, you gotta be dressed up. You, I mean, literally, you gotta be dressed to the nines. Well, I didn't grow up in church, first of all. And when I went to the first church, after I became a Christian and I watched everybody, I parked in the parking lot I got there early. I knew I'd went to the Christian bookstore because I didn't get saved in church and I wasn't around Christians. I get saved all by myself as the Lord spoke to me supernaturally at home. So I went and bought a Bible, started reading my Bible and went to a church and parked in the parking lot and waited for the people to come. And then the people came and they were all in suit and ties. Even little four-year-olds were in suit and ties. I mean, they were adorable. I mean, they were just totally adorable. But when I watched them, I have never, honestly, this is not, I've never owned a suit in my life at that point. And so I had this polo shirt and my Wranglers on in my old Chevy pickup. And I looked at the way I was dressed and I looked at them and I'm like, I can't go into that church because traditionally they're not going to accept me because I don't fit. I don't fit in that culture. And they're going to look at me like, don't you know you should be, you know, put on your best for God. Well, I was newly saved, very excited about Jesus. And I didn't know up until that point that God was going to be impressed with what I wore. As if the Lord's in heaven like, woo, that's a snappy outfit you got on, Rick. <laughs> so a lot of these things were lost upon me. And, and don't get me wrong, if, you, if that's your tradition and that's where you're at, you're free to express your walk with the Lord as you choose. But this is where it becomes a problem when you take your conviction and you shove it onto me. Or I take mine and I shove it onto you. Something that's not biblical in nature. That's your habit. That's your conviction. That's your custom. In this passage, there's lots of tradition that the Jewish people, anybody remember watching Fiddler on the Roof? And one of the, you know, the famous song is tradition, right? And the Jewish people have a lot of rich tradition. But sadly, they began to exchange tradition for relationship with God. And that's very easy to do because tradition's much safer than intimacy with God. Because once you have intimacy with God, God starts messing with your business, right? He starts messing with your heart and speaking to you about issues. Let's stand together and see as Jesus deals with this as we see how to diagnose our heart problems. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. 
Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Holding the tradition of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisee and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as uh, doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things. And all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and we pray that you would awaken our hearts to this passage that, Lord, your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, help us as we come alive to your word by your grace and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jesus is up in the Galilee area by Capernaum, and some scribes and Pharisees have traveled north and come up to be observing this young Jewish upstart rabbi. And as they've come there, they notice something right away because people that are coming to be critical and they come through the lens that they have, they immediately notice that Jesus' disciples are not practicing their traditions. They come in and they begin to eat bread, like they grab a piece of bread and they just start eating it, but they did it with unwashed hands. Now Mark's gospel is the one that lets us know, and we know by their traditions, that it did not mean the washing of your hands. Like you got dirt on your hands and you just go wash them like that. It was a very elaborate, special way that they had to wash their hands. They had to wash their hands and the water had to drip off of their wrists and they had to do this and they had to, I mean, it was like, and then they would do it between courses of the meal sometimes. I mean, it was just this, this thing. But to them, you know, the way that they did this, somehow that tradition commended them or drew them closer to God. And this is the big mistake that we make. And Jesus wants to deal with this head on because, you see, he's now entered a culture that is saturated in these kind of traditions. Jesus and his disciples constantly get themselves into trouble because of these things, right? When Jesus' disciples are walking through the field and they start picking heads of grain off because it's ripe, and they rub it in their hands, you blow off the chaff, and you pop it in your mouth. If you've ever done that growing up in rural Idaho, you pop it in, you can chew the weed, it kind of becomes like a gum, and you're just enjoying the, the, the food of it. And uh, both my father and grandfather uh, had a thrashing business, custom combining for grain, corn, beans, those things. So that was kind of my world. And... <laughs> Yet the disciples, when they did it and it was on the Sabbath, they said, oh, they're harvesting, they're working. And Jesus has to constantly talk to them about these things because they wanted to talk about the external things and not the internal things of relationship. They wanted to talk about outward traditions of religion and Jesus wanted to talk about the heart of relationship. And this is always the two approaches that all people are trying to approach God. Those who are trying to externally come to God through this outward conformity. You go to a church and you go, oh, this is how they dress. This is how the ladies wear their hair. You wear makeup or you don't wear makeup. Have you ever seen, you always know, a legalistic, traditional church, if all the people are dressed exactly the same, right? Because that's what's accepted for godliness. It's like they're the poster child, right? You wear, this, you wear this gunny sack, put your hair up, and never wear makeup. And so, and I'm not opposed to that. If you like the fashion statement, right, that's your thing, gunny sacks and, and, and but it's fine if you want to dress that way, but if somebody wants something that's still modest but stylish, or they uh, you know, put some makeup on. But in these traditions of, of certain Christian cultures, 
It's like, because this is a biblical fact. You know the first woman to wear makeup was Jezebel. She is the wicked woman of the West in the Bible. And so they're like, that hussy, that Jezebel, she wears makeup. Well, we are a long ways, brothers and sisters, from Jezebel. And I just say, if the barn needs painting, paint that barn. It's, okay. it's all right. <laughs> and, you know, ladies are, uh, ladies are not supposed to wear, wear pants. And people will tell me, you know, well, women are not supposed to wear pants. I, uh, lady, I promise you, the pants my wife has, I wouldn't be caught dead in those britches, right? But there's all of these things. But the mistake, there can be outward fashion. There can be these things. But what happens when you say this tradition... The way I dress, this or that, it makes me closer to God. That's the mistake you make. And then you say, you put the pressure on other people. If you want to be close to God, you better dress like me. You better be exactly like me. So when they came into the midst, it tells us in verse 2, now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is unwashed hands, they found fault. They did not wash their hands in the special, prescribed, traditional, elaborate, involved way. So they found fault because that's what they believed drew people or made you close to God. Jesus is into inward transformation that works its way outward. And religion says, no, it's outward conformity that never makes its way to the inside. Those are two different things. And you're trying to approach God basically by outward conformity, or you're trying to approach God with a heartfelt relationship with God, and he'll change you from the inside out. And the beautiful thing when he changes us from the inside out, that there is variety and there is diversity and we're unique, and that's why you guys don't, you guys are a motley crew, right? You're a hodgepodge of everything, and because you are free as the Lord leads you. Now, there's you know, a couple of stipulations for dress, which ladies to dress modestly. It's great. I'm so thankful, ladies, you are wearing clothes today. It makes me very happy. And, and to wear, you know, clothes that obviously the Bible talks about modesty. But besides that, you are a free people. Now, Jesus wants to deal with this, and he's now been asked, he says, you know, they told him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions? Why don't they practice these empty outward rituals that don't draw you close to God? I don't know about you, but I'm not into extra just for extra sake. It, it doesn't do anything for me. I would rather have this relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus now is going to diagnose their heart problem, which is quite scary for religious people, right? Religious people that do religious things and have religious traditions and come to church religiously when God opens up their heart, reads their mail, and deals with and exposes their hypocrisy. We see the religious heart in verse 6. And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me. He tells them three things that are is prophesied through Isaiah, talking about them. And Jesus takes this scathing prophecy from Isaiah, and he applies it to the congregation that he's speaking to right now, or these individuals. And this is, this is a very penetrating, hard-hitting, hey, you know, Isaiah's talking about you hypocrites. Now, anytime somebody just blatantly, to your face, calls you a hypocrite, and then slams you with a powerful Bible verse, that has an effect, don't you think? Right? If I addressed you guys as you came here, instead of, hey, God speak, how you guys doing? Hey, you bunch of hypocrites, how'd you find your way here? <laughs> so glad you made it so I can give you the scathing report that I have for you. <laughs> you wouldn't be back next week, but <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of one and done shot <laughs> when you treat people. But Jesus was trying to go through, because he's not trying to play games. He's trying to reach people's hearts. And he tells them three things. He says, you honor me. You say you value me with your mouth. But your heart, it's somewhere else. And that can be said today, right? 
You came here to church and you're like, hey, we're going to go to church. You know, praise God, love Jesus, that stuff. But right now your heart's like in never, never land, right? You go through the motions, but your heart's not there. You and I know we can say things and behave in ways that our heart is disconnected from. And that is not to say that there's not a sacrifice of praise, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13, meaning I worship the Lord when I don't feel like it. That's what sacrifice is. It's not a sacrifice if I feel like it, right? If I was like, hey, you know what? The Lord wants me. So it's not just the, sometimes we have cold hearts that are not fully engaged. But here it's talking about a lifestyle from morning to night that you're honoring God with your, your language, but your heart's just far from God. And not, so there's this disconnect. Now, it doesn't seem like that's a very far distance to have the disconnect, <laughs> right from here to here. What is that, eight inches, 10 inches? And... But that disconnect is I'm saying things that my heart sincerely does not believe. Right? Well, I'm acting more spiritual. I'm saying things more spiritual than I actually am. And hypocrisy, brothers and sisters, is not somebody that's struggling in their walk with God. All Christians struggle. Just to struggle with things is not hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy is when you act like you're more spiritual than you actually are. That's hypocrisy. If I look at you and you look at me and say, man, I've really been struggling. It's honesty, right? It's, it's not hypocrisy. I just, you know, I, I, I'm struggling. And not to act, and that's why from my perspective it's so important in ministry not to have this elevated persona of, you know, projecting a persona of super spirituality. Because I'm not that. I'm just like you. You got struggles, I got struggles. You're like, well, you don't know my struggles. Well, you don't know my struggles. Let's not scare each other, right? Let's just, keep, let's just keep them between you and me and Jesus, right? So in that experience, it's so important. But Jesus says, what my, God's heart is, is that my mouth is actually now lining up with my heart. What I'm saying is connected to my heart. And when my mouth is saying the same things, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So these guys are speaking hypocritically, and it's out of the abundance of their heart that they are speaking hypocritically. And he says, you're worshiping me, you are worshiping me in vain or in an empty way. So you guys are going through the, you guys are wasting a lot of energy in worship because it's all empty. Because who are you worshiping? If God's not receiving your hypocritical worship, why are you wasting your time? So it's in vain. So once I, I connect my heart and my mouth and my worship, it's no longer in vain because my heart is expressing my worship and my love for God, and it's sincere. Though it is in a vessel, as we're going to see in a moment, he's going to give us 13 tragic things that just bubble up in our own hearts. But then he goes on to say, once your mouth is disconnected from your heart and you're worshiping in vain, he says in verse 7, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men and laying aside the commandment of God, you will lay hold of the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and other such things that you do. All too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. They subtly, creatively were worried about how they washed their hands and they also had special ways that they washed their cups and their plates and all of that stuff. And he said, what you're doing is you're exchanging these commandments and traditions of men and you're basically negating what God's word actually says. So rather than focusing on God's word, you're coming up with all this empty um, rhetoric that just, it means nothing. Now, if you're a person trapped in tradition, you need somebody to come speak some truth to you, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. He's hoping to break them out of their tradition. The church is surrounded in tradition, right? This week on Wednesday, I was uh, coming out of Albertsons, and, and so it's Ash Wednesday. So uh, a Catholic brother had um, ash on his forehead, coming in with the sign of a cross, and he's coming in, the, and it reminded me, which is, you know, hey, you want to, if you want to observe Lent, you know, starting 46 days before Easter, and you want to go through that, Lent's usually typically giving up something, but uh, per, I've never, I've never practiced Lent, because it's not in the Bible, and uh, it's not something that interests me. When I want to fast, and I want to give stuff up, I don't need it to be Lent season to do so. That's just my own personal persuasion, but if you want to do it, great. But I remember uh, 
we were going to do a minister thing together, and I had this minister basically scold me because it was Lent, and how dare I uh, invite people to this, this lunch place to, for these ministers to have lunch since it's Lent. And I'm like, well, you deal with your clothing Lent the way you want to. No, I didn't say that. You see, it's not a problem if somebody personally embraces Lent. God bless you. I rejoice with you. I rejoice with the guy, you know, coming into the store. I have no, I have no beef. I only have a beef when you try to force on me what you're choosing to embrace because that's what you want to do, okay? I'm not going to force my stuff on you. And that's what they're doing with Jesus and, and the disciples here, and they're elevating these practices above Scripture, I have a relationship with God, and he's given me this incredible book that is filled with his word. And like the Lord said to Joshua, the word I've given you, don't turn to the right or the left. Because you see, Joshua started now that they had the word, unlike Moses, that God was speaking directly to Moses. He gave the written word to Joshua, and he says, now, Joshua, here's, here's the word right here. And I don't want you to go to the right or the left. And this is what people do. People that go to the right, they want to add stuff to God's word and heap up some legalism because it's not strong enough already. Excuse me? You know how strong the message of this book? I don't need anything extra. How about you? Like, I'm just struggling to get through what I'm doing. Right? Don't give me more stuff. And those who are, go to take the word of God to the left, they begin to detract or take away God's word. The liberal church today that has rejected the authority of the Bible have now watered down the word of God to say that it doesn't mean what is written. So they've, detract, they've subtracted from the authority of the word. Legalists add to it, I just want to enjoy it. So I don't want to go, the, I don't need it to be stronger, it's already strong. I don't need it to be weaker, it's not weak. But the person that adds to it, there's this desire for almost this self-righteous pride, but the person that detracts from it is they want a broader scope in which they can live a lifestyle and the Bible has lost this authority, right? They can practice whatever they want. And as this unfolds to us, now Jesus is going to explain that. Religious hypocrisy, he now defines as figuring out a way, if there's a clear instruction of God, of finding a loophole to get around it. Humans are creative, aren't they? Right? If you've got a six-year-old, he knows how to get around the loophole. I mean, they're very creative. We are very creative. So he says in verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, this is what God's word said. Jesus just announced it. You're to honor your father and mother. That means to value them, to care about them. The, you know the scriptures don't command you as a child to love your parents it demands you to honor them, which to place value upon them. Even as an adult, I honor my parents. I honor them in my respect towards them. I honor them in talking to them. I honor them in helping them when they have needs. I honor them. But this is what they've done in verse 11. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban. This was the special name that it uh, had. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. So this is what God says, honor your mom and dad. These religious leaders come along. Well, let's make a loophole around that so that you can dedicate the money that you would help mom and dad. Now realize in a culture that has no safety net for old people except family. There's no retirement homes, there's no rest homes, there's no convalescent homes. Your home as a child is that home. And so they come along and they say, now you really don't have to help your parents. Really? I, th I thought the scriptures, I, I thought God's heart was for me to honor my parents. And that means to honor them and value them in their old age and take care of them until they die. Oh, no, no. We have a tradition. We found a way around that. What you need to do with that money that you, how much money would have you needed to help your parents? Well, about this much a month. Okay, you dedicate that now to God and you can call it, and when mom and dad say, son, I need some help, you go, mom and dad, I'd really love to help you. I know the scriptures tell us we should help you, but you see, my rabbi has this tradition that if I just dedicate the money I would have given to you and I call it korban, which is dedicated to God, I don't have to help you at all. 
And Jesus is saying, you, you think your traditions are godly? This is your tradition. God says, take care of your folks. And you say, oh no, I just dedicated those resources to God and I don't have to take care of my folks. How is it that a person trapped in the blindness of religious tradition cannot see the error and the fallacy of that? Because our human hearts are always looking for a way to take care of ourselves and not others. It's self-preservation. You, you know, you don't, it's going to cost you time, energy, effort to take care of your folks, right? It's a weird thing. At my age, you know, you raise the kids, they all go off and get married, and then you turn around like, oh, no, mom and dad needs help. You know, and, and, and now you're turning around, and you thought you were in this big footloose and fancy free thing, and it's like, no, no, no. I, I just got done with the diapers with the kids, and now mom and need, dad are going to need some diapers. Okay, we're, you know, we're, mo we're moving on. And... And people not realizing that, you know, how I take care of my folks, I am modeling for my children how to take care of me. And so if I want them to take care of me, I better take care of them because they need to see that. So last year when my mom is, you know, she's 84, she's struggling with cancer, and my brother and sister and I do this tag team thing for basically three months. Fine, I would preach on the weekend, I would fly there, and I'd come back on Friday and preach on the weekend, and we're just going back and forth until my mom entered heaven, just passed away with the three of us just sitting there by her bedside as she breathed her last to honor her. And you see people say, well, you don't know my parents. I'm like, I don't have to know your parents. Do you know that's an unqualified statement, honor your father and mother? It's unqualified. They're good parents, they're bad parents, they're lame parents, they're ex-con parents, they're, they're what, whatever they are. My mom's been married four times. My dad's been married three times. I got step-siblings. I, I could have said, you know what? Somebody else in this big dysfunction junction should take care of you, right? Because it's a whole new thing. And my mom in her, her last marriage, then she created a whole new family. So there's like all these other siblings that, you know, are raised up. So is it the responsible? Well, you see, my, my sister, my brother, and I, we're the oldest, we're in a place where we should help. We're in a place we can help. And it's a good, godly thing to honor God and honor your parents. But what if I would have just been over here and going, you know what? I could buy that plane ticket. I could go, but Corban, I debted all that money to God. I'm going to stay here and go for a walk on Malibu Beach. Sayonara, Mom. I guess I'll see you in heaven. You see how callous, like, their, they had let their traditions, and they thought these traditions were so spiritual. And they were actually evil. They were evil. Now, granted, don't get me wrong. I know somebody's going to come up after the service like, oh, no, now I'm thinking about my parents. Like, you figure that out. I'm not counseling you through your that. <laughs> right? I had to figure out my junk. You got to figure out your junk. My junk's really big. I got a lot of work to do. You deal with your junk. Pray and the Holy Spirit will lead you how to honor your folks. He will lead you. He will show you how to do that. Honor simply means to value. And if you, whatever you value, this is what Jesus taught us, this wonderful secret. He says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Whatever I value, my heart is there. Whatever I don't value, my heart's not there. It's not there. So whatever you value, your heart will be there. He goes on, and he says in verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. A hypocrite figures out traditions to remove the power and authority of God's word that they have to obey. That's what a hypocrite does. And their hearts and their mouth are disconnected. Their worship is in vain. And yet on the outside, they think they are so spiritual. And they act like they're spiritual to everybody around them. But the person that simply loves God and loves his neighbor is light years ahead of them in a relationship with God than those who have a very, very long list of their religious tradition that is powerless, that's replaced God's word. Well, now we have the relational health 
The disciples, Jesus' disciples really don't get this. They thought the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they've, always, they've raised up going, these guys are the super spiritual elite. And Jesus says in verse 14, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive? that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. You see, the mistake they were making was this very traditional, elaborate hand washing and then eating food. So they thought they didn't wash their hands traditionally, so their hands unwashed, eating, now they're defiled, and now they're defiled by the food that they ate. And Jesus said, food can't defile you because it goes in and it goes out. And we'll leave it at that, right? <laughs> it's eliminated. Jesus says, it comes in your body and it goes out. Now, when you get a little food poisoning, it comes out more violently. But besides that, <laughs> it still comes in and it goes out. There we go. So the religious traditional person thinks that, oh, the food that you eat is going to make you commendable to God, draw you closer to God. Now, we live in a generation of food psychotic behavior, right? And no whatever you are, God bless you, you're a vegetarian, you're a vegan, you're slash whatever the newest thing is, you're, I mean, I, I can't even keep up, right, with all the food stuff. And uh, I'm a, I'm not, I'm an omnivore, I eat everything, and I think most of the stuff I eat is vegan, but... You know, I mean, the animals that I eat, I think, are vegan. <laughs> I know you guys didn't get that. Like, the animals I eat are vegan. So I, I'm close to home for some of you. Like, feel me. You feeling me? Okay. <laughs> but this is the thing. Whatever diet you want to eat, God bless you in your diet, it does not draw you closer to God. Whatever food you do eat or you don't eat does not make you closer to God. And this is what Paul the Apostle says to the Corinthians that were really wrapped up in this. He said, food does not commend you to God. If you're a vegetarian, you are not going to be more powerful in prayer. If you are a vegan, you are not more powerful in your godly walk. If you are a vegetarian or a vegan and a very healthy person, whatever that is, that's great. That is for physical health. It does not touch or enhance your spiritual life. The Bible is emphatically clear. Now, this was shocking to the Jews because they had very strict dietary, dietary laws, which are kosher, correct? Kosher. And this becomes a New Testament reality because Peter, being raised in this, in Acts chapter 10, the Lord gives him a vision. Three times a big sheet comes down, and there's all these unclean animals in there. And the Lord says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he looks in there, and he goes, oh, <laughs> I've never had bacon in my life, right? No pork chops, no bacon, none of these, no. And the Lord does it again. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, I'm not doing it. Three times, he looks in there, and the Lord keeps telling him, Peter, what I have declared to be clean, don't call unclean. So Paul the Apostle says to Timothy, he says, whatever through prayer and the word of God you sanctify the food, you can eat. Now that makes me very, very happy. My first experience with a, a vegan, two guys from Southern California, I'm up in Idaho, this is 15 years ago, and they come from SoCal, right? I never know what the uh, granola vibe's gonna be. <laughs> Coming up north to the meat-eating world capital. And they said, uh, uh, their parents who were, were bringing them, they were like 20-somethings, but their parents said, they're vegan. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> don't know what that is. I said, well, they just, you know, they don't eat meat. I'm like, well, that's pretty simple. So uh, I told my wife, she goes to Sam's Club, she gets normal burgers, and she gets the veggie burger thing. And I said, that'll work. And so I go down there, and I said, I'm going to go. I got the meat, uh, plate of meat and then the veggie burgers. And I'm going down, and these two get, like, get right in my pocket like they're going to cook with me. I'm looking at them like, wow. These... And, and I put the burger, and they're just watching me like a hawk. And I'm like, there must be some procedures here that I'm not aware of. 
and this was the procedure. You, you vegans, you know, right? I went to flip the veggie burger with the spatula that had touched the meat burger. <laughs> I'm like, you may not touch our veggie burger with your spatula. You touch your meat burger. I'm like, is that a thing? Let's go flip it over. You want me to use my feet? So they went, ran up into the kitchen, and they got, they got another spatula. I'm like, this is a weird world. I'm not familiar <laughs> with this world. Shortly before that, I had another experience. I went out with this young couple from our church, really sweet couple, and they immediately began to grill me about, do you eat MSG? And I'm like, M MSG? I eat everything. What's MSG? And they begin to go through a list of things that are just killing me. And, you know, and God, you know, their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and my digestive system is amazing. It goes in and it goes out. It's just, it's all working. Whatever I put in, it's going out. Do I have to be freaked out by, you know, MSG and all your list of stuff and the vegan business and this and that? I was invited to go out with this couple, and somebody said they make a big deal about the Christianity and being a vegetarian. I said, great. You know, we go out, and we have salads. And the whole time, I'm like, I'm going to eat a salad now, and I'm going to Texas Roadhouse for a ribeye after this. <laughs> because I will love people in the space they are, right? But I'm free, and you're free. I'm not going to push my dietary things on you. You're not going to put your pushers on me, or I'm not going to let them stick if you do choose to. Because the amazing thing is, is the real issue that the disciples did not get is that what defiles me is not food. It's not unwashed hands. It's not the tradition of, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. People tell me that's in the Bible. I'm like, read it cover to cover many times. It's not in there. <laughs> right? God helps those who help himself. Not a Bible verse, not in there. You can live that way if you want, but I'm just telling you, it's not in there. So this is the painful reality. Relational honesty. Relational honesty with the Lord and yourself and knowing what's in your heart. Because Jesus now tells us what does defile us. What comes out of a man in verse 20, that defiles a man. From within, out of the heart of man, men proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And I didn't eat one of them. <laughs> and they all come out of me. Your heart, Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. The Lord says, you know what's inside of you, Rick, and you know what defiles others? Is the stuff that just comes out of your heart. You see, I don't have to, like, I don't have to be hanging down in the hood, smoking crack for these things to come out of me. Like, I'm just minding my own business and these things just bubble up in me. Evil thoughts. Fornication, adult, like lustful thoughts, bitter thoughts, greedy thoughts, covetous, desire to steal, desire to murder. These things come from the human heart. Shortly out of the garden, right, Cain kills Abel. He's not hanging with the Crips and the Bloods, you know, capping people. Where'd that come from? It came from inside of him. The religious person goes around judging everybody with no mercy, comforting themselves in their own hypocrisy. The person with a right relationship with God is not judging anybody. He's judging his own heart. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about what's going on in your life. I'm dealing with my own heart. The Bible says to submit to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And that's a daily experience. That's why the Bible says to take those thoughts captive, those things. My heart is this sin factory that just produces it like a weed patch in your backyard. Right? Just, 
just comes up. And that's why David prayed, Lord, created me a clean heart, oh God. I, I need a clean heart. I need a, a steadfast fear. I, I need a new work that is internal, not external. And as he changes my heart, it begins to work its way out so that I'm not defiling the people and hurting them, the people that are around me. See, when you do a heart exam, echocardiogram, or you scope a heart, and you're looking at that heart, Jesus right now is doing your own heart exam. And he's like, you know what? These 13 things flow from the human heart. And you haven't done anything to produce it except breathe air. People say humans are sinners because they sin. That's not true. Humans sin because they are sinners. It's in reverse. So when Jesus came in such a revolutionary way to transform our lives by his grace and to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to conquer the power of sin in your life so I can now for the first time be obedient to God. And ha I have these thoughts, but I'm going to take those thoughts captive and resist them, and I want to please God. Is the first time when I came to Christ, it was the first time in my life I could do that. Prior to that, I was just led around by the nose by my own sin. Whatever felt good, I just did it. And Jesus came to break that. And then the consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus dealt with my two greatest enemies. The bondage of sin my own heart brings to me. His forgiveness. And he cut the instinctive cord that now I, when I'm tempted, oh, oh I'm going I'm to yield to you, God, not that. And I'm going to obey you. And when I die, I'm going to be with you forever. That's why the good news of the Christian life, to change, to do the heart surgery, to deal, diagnose my own heart problems. I look at parents, and this is the most mind-blowing thing to me. Parents are so troubled by little Johnny and what little Johnny's up to. I'm like, well, you knew who you were, right? What'd you do? Oh, we don't talk about that. That was a long time ago. I know. You were little Johnny one time. Right? You were doing this and you were doing that. It's like the parents have this this amnesia about their own sinfulness, and then these children come from their body, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and they're living just like you. <laughs> right? And parents are like, oh, oh, my goodness. I'm so shocked. Like, really? <laughs> and sin is going to manifest itself in everybody's life. And whether they choose to surrender to Jesus and to have that subdued, by God's grace and God's spirit and walk with God. But everybody has the same heart problems. That's why religious pride and hypocrisy to me is the biggest joke on the planet. Because the person that's walking around in their haughtiness and their self-righteousness and all this stuff, it's like, I'm looking, I'm like, dude, I know what's in your heart. How? Because Jesus told me what's in your heart. You can put on whatever, you, you know, yeah, that used to happen to me like 20 years ago. It's like, you still breathing? You're still breathing. You, you, you got problems just like me. I mean, you're Mr. Hoity-toity. It is so easy. Some people's sin is actually self-righteous pride. That is their sin. Other people, it might be more sexual sin or it's addiction of some sort. Some people's sin is their self-righteous pride, and they mask it in spirituality. But they're actually just a jerk. <laughs> right? They're just a jerk but they can say it in Jesus' name. So it seems so spiritual. It's like, you know better than me and I'm no better than you. I am one beggar sharing with the other beggars where the bread of Jesus' love and forgiveness is. And when you have that, there's a golf clap that tried back there. It's, it's all right. No, it's, a little, it's like, either go all in or stay out. You know, it's like this. This halfway thing, I'm, I'm not sure about. It's all right. <laughs> I wasn't going for that, but all right, I'll take it. What I'm saying is when a lost, hurting, broken world comes into a room filled with people that have experienced God's grace, love, and mercy and wants to share that with them, it's the most supernatural thing they'll ever experience in their life. But when those same broken, hurting people, struggling with their marriage, 
struggling with their kids. So we should all be called just the, you know, the first church of the strugglers up here in Dos Vientos, <laughs> right? And we come in because we're humans. That's the way it is. But when they come to into an atmosphere of self-righteous righteous judgment and, and they, they don't meet our standard, hey, our standard is ground level low. Like the bar can't be any lower, you guys, for who we are. Why is it that the common people heard Jesus gladly? The religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. The common people said he was, they were attracted to Jesus' love, grace, and forgiveness like a magnet. Are people attracted to you like a magnet? Or do you repulse people? I've met some Christians that when, you know, they're, they're so, they're so um, offensive in their arrogance and their condescension, I just look at them like, I would, ne if I knew, if that's the version of Christianity, I would never want to be one of you, ever. Because there's nothing attractive that draws me to that. But grace and forgiveness and help in time of need for desperate people is like <laughs> bugs to a light bulb on a dark night. And I can't get enough of that. May the Lord do that heart surgery in us and even as a congregation so that there is a, an attraction to who we are. That the message of God's love permeates, saturates, and swallows up broken hearts and helps them be whole. Let's pray. Lord, we pray in your grace that you would meet us right now. I know that there are people here, Lord. They're just brokenhearted. Their marriage is struggling. Their kids are struggling. There are some who are here that are addicted. They were totally out of it last night, and yet they've made it here today. Lord, in your kindness to throw a lifeline of love and encouragement, forgiveness and support, and, and to bring healing and to bring wholeness, and to bring strength and victory through that. Lord, there's no way for us to be able to um, touch every issue with our, our human hearts or minds, but Lord, your spirit right now can do something so wonderful with the, the loneliness or the, or the hurting or the brokenness for each person here. And so I just pray that your spirit would do that work of grace in your precious people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for this closing song. I want you to know that uh, as we close, uh, as uh, Rob mentioned, just March 1st, if you want to go up to Santa Barbara and, and support for that, nice drive. And uh, it's always nice to have the troops. Let's worship the Lord with this closing song.